Welcome to Season 2 of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute, where our own research has found relationships to be the roots of all young people need to grow and thrive. During our first season, we focused on the power of relationships that enable young people to shape their own lives and make an impact on their communities. This season, I'm pleased to share that we are featuring interviews conducted by educational leader and former Search Institute CEO, Kent Pickell. Throughout this season, we will explore how connections to resources, relationships, and social networks provide the key conditions that all young people need to thrive. We will consider how culture, class, family, childhood education, and other factors all influence relationship building. On this episode of Rooted in Relationships, we talk with Dr. Jessica Calarco, a leading researcher at the University of Indiana. Dr. Calarco discusses inequities, why they persist, and the role they play in building trust, and how teachers and other adults can turn the tables by offering unsolicited support to young people. I am so excited on this episode of the Rooted in Relationships podcast uh, to have the chance to talk with Dr. Jessica Calarco, who is a leading thinker and researcher at the University of Indiana and is doing just exciting, great things. And so thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Kent. So you have, your research interests are diverse, but I think it's fair to say that a through line, one of several through lines across all of the, the studies that you've done and are doing is inequality, inequality in schools and higher education. So just kind of to start with your personal trajectory as a scholar, like what led you to the study of inequality? And then we'll, we'll dig into some of the different types of inequality that you've looked at in your work. Sure. I mean, I think I've, I've long been interested in, in the role that institutions play in, in promoting inequalities or reinforcing inequalities in society. When I was a kid, we moved from a very working class neighborhood to a very middle class neighborhood and kind of saw firsthand the differences in, in terms of people's occupations, in terms of schools, in terms of just opportunities, and kind of was aware of that from a fairly young age. And then also had a chance in, in high school, I was on the school board. I was our student school board representative. And this was right around the time of No Child Left Behind. Um, and I was pretty involved at the time in... I went and like I lived in Pennsylvania, and I went and testified at the state senate about oh, how some awesome. of the uh, accountability measures that they were putting in place were really deeply unfair, really deeply inequitable when it came to, to the, the treatment of students. And so I think I had a very early exposure to this idea that that kind of research and, and could influence policy, and that people could influence policy through the kind of advocacy um, that, that often relates to, to to research that happens. Um, and so that's kind of what led me to. Um, pursue degrees in, in sociology and education as an undergrad, and then to go on to grad school to look into some of those same questions, um, thinking about kind of where do inequalities come from and sort of why do they persist, even if we know from research that they're harmful and that they do damage to so many in society. So just to pick, and there are so many we could spend our whole time on, on all the variations in inequality that you've, you've looked at. One that jumped out at me was at students' help-seeking behaviors. One of the things that I did, I really come more from the practice side. I was a teacher administrator and was in charge of research in an urban school district, but have been there. And one of the things in the work we were doing on really, we called it college readiness. We meant post-secondary readiness was this critical 
ability to proactively seek help or the lack thereof. And it was something I know we weren't cultivating at the time. And when I saw that it's been a focus of your research, I thought that's a really interesting place to start because it's so critical and so under-discussed. Thank you. And, and yes, I mean, I think one of the things that I've that I found in my research is that there are differences in the 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 degree to which students feel entitled to ask for help, and also the the, the kind of comfort that they feel in doing so. And, and I I think it's important to note though that those differences it's not just about sort of personality or personal style or kind of even whether they know to ask for help. Instead, it's often about trust. It's about the idea that people will only, uh, students especially if they're in a vulnerable position status-wise, will only ask for help if they trust the people with the power to help them. So, for example, students won't ask for help if they can't trust the person that they're asking, if they worry that they'll be judged or punished for needing help or for making demands on, uh, on their teacher's time or on other people's time. And part of the problem there is that, that the trust isn't automatic. It, it has to be earned. And so a teacher might see herself as trustworthy, and she might assume that students will feel comfortable coming to her and asking for help or acknowledging when they're struggling. But if those students have been treated callously by other teachers or by other people in the past, they're probably not automatically going to trust that teacher to help them, at least not without clear evidence that doing so kind of won't lead to further harm. They might not ask for help when they don't understand an assignment or ask for an extension, even when they're dealing with a difficult circumstance at home that would be very worthy of some sort of a kind of extension or flexibility or accommodation. And kind of if we're talking about older students, they might not ask for a letter of recommendation for college or for grad school or for a job if they don't trust that person to provide that support for them or if they worry that they're being a burden on the person that they're asking for help. And so thinking about how the importance of thinking about relationships, it's about sort of the, the trust that's in that relationship and that we can't just assume that that trust is there. And that especially for students from systematically marginalized groups, there's reason for them to, to not trust the people who are in positions of authority, uh, whether that's teachers or others around them within school settings or in employment types of settings and thinking about how easily that trust can be broken and how once it's broken, that can make it even more difficult for, for students or for others to get the support that they need. So if you were talking to a teacher or you are a teacher, one of the things that was really impressive in looking at your background is how serious you take your own teaching at the university level. So you are a teacher in addition to a professor. How do you, how would you advise a teacher, especially one that was maybe from a more advantaged or white background to reach with, reach a young person who's growing up in a marginalized community? What are some things you can do to build that trust? I mean, one of the things that I've found in my research is, is that teachers and other potential helpers can, can bridge that trust gap by recognizing silent signs of struggle, by sort of not putting students in the position where they have to ask, and also by offering unsolicited support. And so often for teachers, it's, it's easy to make judgments about students um, when they don't show up for class, when they don't return in their assignments on time, uh, when they're struggling on exams. It's easy, based on sort of the stereotypes that we have, to, to make the assumption that those students just aren't motivated or just don't want to do the work or that they're just not smart enough or they didn't work hard enough. But the problem there is that there may be things going on behind the scenes. Those may be students who really need help, but who don't necessarily trust us enough, at least initially, to be able to ask for the support that they need to be able to succeed on that assignment or that they had something going on at home that kept them from getting the work done or from showing up on time. And essentially, in those moments, it's easy for if the teacher's kind of relying on those stereotypical assumptions, they might yell at the student or punish them or give them a low grade on an assignment. And that's just going to further undermine the kind of trust that that student has in that teacher, especially if there was something going on that, that, that made it harder for them to succeed in those moments. 
And so what I would argue instead in those moments that, that the teachers should actively be looking for when students are struggling, that we should our, our default assumption should be that there's something going on that's making it hard for them to succeed and that that student probably needs extra help and support and not punishment as a way to sort of move through that situation. And so if a student isn't showing up for class regularly or if they're turning in assignments late or not turning them in at all, reaching using it as a signal to reach out to those students and say, hey, I just wanted to check in and say, what's going on? Let me, let me not to ask for probing details, but rather to say, hey, I just wanted to make sure you're doing okay. I wanted to make sure that you know that there's support available if you need it. I'm happy to meet and talk through ways to get back on track or ways to think through alternative assignments if what's what we're doing isn't working for you. So sort of bridging that trust gap by making it clear that the teacher is willing and able to offer support and assistance and flexibility without forcing the student to have to ask for it in those moments. And essentially that's, I think it's kind of making it clear that, that students are not going to be judged for asking, making it clear that they're not going to be punished for seeking support, and also making it clear that, that the teacher can be a resource for, for those students who might otherwise feel uncomfortable asking or feel like they're being a burden or feel like they might be demanding too much by asking for flexibility. Um, I think that the more that, that kind of those with the power to provide support uh, can take that role, um, the less of a burden it is on students to do that work instead. Yeah, I love that sort of as a an on-ramp to a relationship and sort of normalizing the need for help proactively, which I think very often never gets done at all. The other thing that has come up in our work, again, especially with young people growing up in historically marginalized communities, is is dependability, doing actually doing what you say you're going to do. That when you sort of, even as a teacher, you know, and I, and I was one at high school level, so older kids, and you say, well, on Friday, we're going to do this. You know, maybe it's a, a game that we like to play or something. And then it gets overtaken by events. And you never do that thing. And it actually can have these more serious sort of, when we do qualitative stuff with kids, they really pay attention to the adults who say they're going to do things and don't don't follow through on them. That observation just brings up to my mind, I read a, a piece you did, I think it was in the Atlantic, where you revisited the famous marshmallow test that found that, you know, kids who can, little kids who can defer eating a marshmallow in the quest for getting two marshmallows were perceived to have more grit or self-control. And some classic studies found that they actually went to college at higher rates many years later. And I thought that you, in that piece, did a really, uh, frankly, important job of kind of updating that research through work that other scholars have done and, and your own work. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the marshmallow test revisited? Thanks. Yeah, no, that was a, a fun piece to, to work on uh, in terms of being able to, to bring some sociological insights to some of the psychological world uh, in terms of, uh, of studies. And, and essentially what, what other research has shown building off of that original experiment is that if you look at inequalities in students' backgrounds, that oftentimes the students who are disproportionately waiting longer are students from more privileged backgrounds. And it's not because they have more grit or more persistence, but some research has shown that it's because they trust the adults around them more to be reliable enough to provide that second marshmallow. That if you are growing up in a circumstance where you are less often getting the kinds of things that have been promised to you, then it makes less sense to wait for that second marshmallow. If you're not sure that that, that second marshmallow is ever going to materialize, and if you don't necessarily trust that researcher to provide it, then it becomes less 
less rational in, in those moments to, to, to actually wait and to focus on sort of what can you get in the short term instead. And so I think that the, the, the subsequent research has shown that once you control for these differences in students' backgrounds, you really don't see uh, an association between students who can wait longer and students who do better in school, that really it's just explained by the fact that more privileged students are waiting longer, that the waiting itself really doesn't have a benefit in terms of students' ability to, to, to succeed in higher education or to go on to, to higher levels of success in life, and that it's very much just a, a proxy measure of privilege instead. So if you were, for instance, if you were a principal or a superintendent, I don't know, whatever level, maybe a teacher in your own classroom, what would be the implications of that, that updated finding? That It seems to me it says something about the environment you create for kids. What's the practical implication of, of that new vision of marshmallows? I mean, I think it suggests that, that kids need consistency and kids need people that they can trust. And we know that especially if we're talking about schools in, in communities where, where schools are highly under-resourced, uh, that that leads to high levels of teacher turnover because teachers are undervalued for the work that they're doing. They're underpaid for the work that they're doing. They're expected to teach large class sizes, often with limited resources in terms of materials or books or other support. And if and that if we have those high rates of teacher turnover, if we high, if have those high rates of instability for students in the classroom, we can anticipate that that would lead students in those classrooms to be less likely to trust the adults in those schools, less likely to feel invested because they feel less invested in themselves. And so thinking about like, what are the implications if we don't have stability, if we don't have the resources necessary for routines? Uh, because oftentimes if a teacher is falling short of meeting their own promises to students, it's probably not because they are ill-intentioned or because they're because they don't have the resources that they need to be effective teachers themselves, that they have too many demands on their time, that they have too many, too few resources to rely on, that they don't have the support that they need as educators from their administrators, from the community, from the sort of the resources that they need to be able to provide that instruction. And so thinking about like, why might some folks, whether those are teachers or whether those are parents or community members, be falling short on their promises to kids? And how can we make sure that the adults, whether that's in the home or in the schools, have the resources that they need to be that reliable resource uh, for students to help them get to where they need to be. Yeah, we, we, there's a little sort of a simple exercise that I do when I get the opportunity to do workshops with teachers in particular, but educators in general. And actually, we also do a lot at Search Institute and Out of School Time. And it's to pose a, a simple set of questions about what we sometimes call the enabling structures for relationship building. Do you have enough time? That's the biggie you just hit. Have you ever had professional development on how to build relationships? Not not where relationships came up in the course of talking about math or something, but it's really focused on relationships. Does your school invest more time or resources in the kids who need relationships the most? Is it differentiated? Do you have any data on relationships? You know, and very often, you know, everybody says, of course, I got into the profession because I care about relationships. So when you start to look at the degree to which uh, many of our educators, to your point about, you know, teachers have those enabling conditions in place. It's a very different picture from what we'd all hope for kids. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we can, so, and especially in the wake of the pandemic, we've seen so many teachers who feel like they have not had the support that they need from their administrators, from their communities, uh, in terms of the demands that have been placed on them the way they've been treated in some cases, um, the way they've been sort of undervalued in some cases, uh, and how that may lead to high rates of, of teachers opting out of the profession. And how my, my mom is actually an elementary school teacher, and she's planning on retiring early uh, after what happened in her district. So she's planning really? to retire this year because of the how everything went down and, and the lack of supportive relationships that existed in her district in the wake of the pandemic. I mean, certainly not from her colleagues, but, but thinking about the way that the pandemic was handled in those contexts and how that led to the 
teachers feeling and being deeply undervalued for the important work that they're doing and not having the resources and supportive relationships that they needed to continue doing their work and, and to feel heard in doing that work as well. Wow. And do you think if the pandemic, well, no, if her district had had dealt with the unavoidable difficulties of the pandemic differently, she might be remaining? Yes. I mean, it was an incredibly difficult decision for her wow. in the sense that it was something that she was on the fence up until, up until yesterday, mm. actually, about whether she was going to, to turn in that letter or not. I mean, so I think if, if the pandemic had been handled differently, she would have continued teaching for probably at least another six or seven years. Wow. That, I mean, there's been, that, there's been not a lot, but some discussion of students never coming back to school. But I don't think there's been very much of teachers not coming back or the exodus now that you're saying that about your mom, I can imagine that's a conversation going in lots of educators' heads across the country right now. Yeah, she was saying that in her district office, the number of openings for positions for next year, is, it just keeps growing uh, with the number of folks that are retiring earlier that are deciding to leave because of the, the way the pandemic was handled. Ugh. So one of the first places I discovered your work was the book you wrote a few years ago, Negotiating Opportunities, How the Middle Class Secures Advantages in Schools which I thought was a, 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 a careful but, but wonderfully provocative hypothesis um, or study. One of the more recent places that I saw you kind of returned to that work was on Twitter, where somebody posted this really interesting question of what, what's your evil job? If you were the, if you were the <laughs> evil you, what, what unethical job would you excel at? Which was like an awesome question for somebody to post. And you tweeted back, I'd write a series of how-to books teaching affluent white parents how to leverage their privilege for their kids' gain. It'd be called Only the Best Blank for My Kid. So it could be Only the Best Neighborhood, Only the Best Preschool, Only the Best Summer Camp, Only the Best Public Schools, Only the Best College, Only the Best... I was like, that's like brilliant in a horrifying way. <laughs> and so if you could kind of just you know unpack... Uh, that research for us a bit, whether it's from your 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 great tweet or your really good book. How does the middle class kind of secure unfair advantages in our schools, and what are the implications of that? And, and I mean, the irony here is that they wouldn't need me to write those how-to books because oh. they already know how to do it. Yeah, that's um, great. And that they're already doing it. And so, I mean, I think that's why I, I wasn't worried too much about tweeting that because this is already happening, and mm -hmm. we know it's been happening for generations, that privileged families... And I, and I talk about in some more recent research, kind of building off of the book about how schools are essentially privilege-dependent institutions. The way that we fund and rank public schools or, or private schools, so much of the resources and the status of schools as institutions is determined by the economic resources and the social standing of the people that they serve. That because of the tax base and the way that we fund public education, schools in affluent white communities have more resources, whether that's the formal tax-related resources or the informal PTA-related resources. And so, and they also have higher status because we know that because of systemic inequalities, students in those schools have higher test scores, which then leads those schools to be seen more favorably as well. And so essentially what that means is that schools have an interest in catering to the needs and demands of affluent white parents. And that creates whole systems of inequality where those students are then 
given privileged status within schools and that those families, whether it's the students themselves, as I find in some of my research, or the parents, as other people have focused on in theirs, can make all sorts of demands on schools. And that even when teachers want to say no, even when they want to push back because they're being asked for things that go beyond what is fair or required, students asking for assistance or accommodations or attention, that that just goes above and beyond what's fair. Or parents asking for accommodations or flexibility or bending the rules for their kids in ways that goes beyond what's fair, that schools have an interest in catering to those families and giving them what they want, even when they know that doing so will ultimately perpetuate inequalities within that school or between schools uh, as well. And so that's kind of one of the, the key themes that I try to get at with the book and with some research that's that's built past that as well, is that the, the whole system is stacked in favor of privileged families. And that because of that, because of the power of privilege within schools and so many other institutions, that those families are just able to run the table and really make so many demands and teach their kids to make those same demands, to feel entitled to ask their teachers for assistance, for accommodations, for attention, to sort of dominate the space within the classroom in a way that students from systematically marginalized groups, their families don't have that same leverage within schools. They don't have that same power. And so they're not treated the same when it comes to making requests. And they're often discouraged from asking for that kind of help or, or accommodations, even when they very much deserve it, more so sometimes than their peers. Yeah. What, one of When I read your book, my wife was a middle school principal. And one of the manifestations of this dynamic that you're talking about for her was if there were certain teachers who were not particularly effective instructionally, but not ones that she could just kind of move out, the more advantaged parents would, like, they'd be in that office first week because they didn't get to, they, kids didn't get to choose their teachers, they'd be in that office the first week saying, you have to move my kid out of that teacher's class. And she would say, like, I think you could document this empirically. Like, the, the, these teachers will have those parents in there, in here, saying, I want to have my kid moved. And then other kids, for whom the impact of that instruction is arguably more important, that leverage wouldn't be there. So so what what can be done about this sort of orientation of our educational system toward the privileged? I know that's a huge, complex question, but you've documented the problem. Like, what are some of the solutions? I mean, I would argue that we really have to address and and reduce the power of privilege in schools. And that means reducing the power of privilege in society more generally. But I'm going to think a place to start is rethinking the way that we fund public education. That right now, the way that public education funding is is so tied to local wealth and local resources, and because of what we know about not only wealth inequalities in society, but how those are tied to systemic racism uh, and to the black-white wealth gap uh, and to other racial wealth gaps that exist in our society, these problems are so deeply entrenched uh, because we continue to say that it's okay for school funding to be determined by who you are and where you live. And that just seems like a deeply inequitable system that if we were to centralize public school funding, for example, or at the very least, if we were to require more equitable distributions of of resources and also to potentially prevent or at least redistribute the kinds of private inflections of funds from things like PTAs and PTOs that are oftentimes adding a, a deeper layer of inequality on top of an already unequal system or helping to make a system more unequal when policymakers try to make it more equal, that the more we can step in to address those kinds of funding inequalities, I think that's a place to start. But then I think you also have, on top of that, we have sort of the the deep systemic inequalities that exist in society as a whole in terms of kind of family resources and and the the, the level of inequality that that students encounter and the level of hardship that students encounter in their communities um, that's hard for schools to address, that we often expect schools to be able to overcome on their own. And so I think really we have to think about 
fixing societies in order to fix schools, but also fixing the way that we fund schools in part as a, a sort of proxy or partway measure to, to reduce that power of privilege and make schools less less dependent on the, the resources of privileged families. And also potentially thinking about the way that we rank schools and evaluate schools as well. Um, thinking about the way that test scores, for example, are used to literally give schools a grade and the role that thing, I mean, there's, there's been some really fascinating research done on websites like greatschools.org and the damage that they do, the way that they literally reinforce racial segregation and literally encourage families to make choices that perpetuate inequalities. So I think that th rethinking the way that we use test scores as measures of school quality, given what we know about the problems with test scores as sort of essentially proxies for privilege, and sort of thinking instead about how can we make sure that schools have the resources that they need to provide effective instruction for the students that they have, and that they have sufficient resources to do so, regardless of the communities that they're located in. That that's sort of a, an important first term, first step, as opposed to saying that, that, that higher performing schools deserve more support mm -hmm. instead. So you, you shared with us earlier that you actually partly got interested in inequality because you were a student on a school board, which is an awesome example of youth leadership empowerment yourself. And then I noticed when I was looking at that wonderful Twitter feed where I found the, the, the tweet we talked about a moment ago, you also post pretty regularly about um, your own kids, your mom of young kids. When you go into your kids' uh, school or schools, are you constantly, as a, a leading researcher of these things, looking at everything from a sociological lens and a parenting lens? And do, do you keep your opinions sometimes to yourself in the interest of sort of, I'm a mom here at this moment? Or do you share some of these, these extraordinary insights, like with, you know, teachers or leaders in your, in your kids' schools? Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, being a privileged parent of privileged kids who studies privileged parents of privileged kids <laughs> is a complicated mess of a psychological experiment to That's be That's great. But it's but certainly I try to be very mindful of when I do intervene, what I say and how, mm -hmm. and making sure that if I'm intervening in school, it is not just for the benefit of my own child, but rather if I'm going to do something, leveraging that and leveraging the knowledge that I do have in ways that could potentially benefit the system as a whole, and especially students from systematically marginalized groups as opposed to just my own kids in, in this system. And so I've certainly, I think I try not to intervene on the individual teacher level, kind of as, as little as possible, mm -hmm. but rather to focus on conversations with administrators, people who are on the school board, um, and having those conversations about uh, what are some ways that we can think about what research tells us about good policy and good practice that could potentially have more of an impact there as well. So I've, I've been working a little bit with, with folks that are on the school board here locally, especially in the context of the pandemic and thinking about decision-making on, on that front and then kind of around questions of school equity, redistricting, potentially those kinds of questions that are always deeply fraught and have big implications for inequality. So I, I think it, it's definitely a, a minefield sometimes. Mm -hmm. And also teaching my own kids, trying to teach them to be mindful of their own privilege. And, and also being, sometimes that means being willing to question my own kids' version of events when it when it comes to what they perceive as fair and and teaching them that that, that fair doesn't mean everyone um, fair doesn't mean them getting what they want, but everyone having the same chance to get what they want. And so helping them to sort of reframe conversations and making sure that I'm correctly interpreting what's happening if they're complaining about something at school, yeah, those of us who do this work 
and have are, happen to be parenting adults ourselves, you're always sort of looking at it a little bit with two lens. Uh, all of our applied research at Search Institute is now on developmental relationships in kids' lives. And my kids are older. My, my youngest daughter is about to graduate from high school. But a couple of years ago, we were sitting and I was talking and my daughter, Victoria, said, Dad, are you just talking to me or are you doing Search Institute stuff right now? You know? <laughs> and I'm, I'm like, well, you know, it's always a little bit of both. Cause, um... So one of the other things about your work that I think looks at an often underappreciated factor, certainly among practitioners, are peer-to-peer relationships, relationships among young people. And you've looked at them in a number of studies at really different you know, points in time. There's a really interesting study that you've been involved in about well, like where young kids sit in elementary school lunchrooms and how that kind of perpetuates segregation. You've also looked at how, you know, best friends influence college completion much later in the sort of age trajectory. So can you just, you know, give us a little bit of a sense of of what some of those studies of relationships among young people have led you to conclude about, you know, first of all, how are those relationships, you know, positive, negative, developmental, and, and are there things that schools or programs could be doing to actually cultivate positive peer-to-peer connections? Because it's not something usually we see uh, like in schools as your to-do list. Absolutely. I mean, so certainly the question of how do peers matter and do we see those kinds of relationships, especially things like one of the questions that I was interested in when I first started graduate school was about cross-class relationships. Um, And do we see students forming cross-class relationships? And if so, can that be a source of cultural capital or kind of the exchange of cultural capital in a way that we might not see from a teacher-to-student relationship because it's a closer peer relationship? And I was sort of, maybe I shouldn't have been surprised to find that there just weren't that many. Even in a school that had a relatively high level of socioeconomic diversity, there weren't that many students who had strong, close cross-class friendships, um, in part because and not necessarily because they disliked each other, um, but because they lived in different neighborhoods. They rode different buses to school. Their parents weren't friends with each other. They didn't have the same extracurricular activities if they had extracurricular activities at all. And, and so I think it, it, what it what it suggested to me was that, and that's kind of where the, the lunchroom study came from, was that uh, one of the strongest predictors of where kids sat in the lunchroom was which neighborhood they lived in, with a school that had lots of different feeder neighborhoods kind of filtering into one one public school. So I think it gets at this idea that that these larger contexts of inequality, that the schools are often just a mirror of the inequalities that exist outside of them. And that oftentimes, that certainly schools can be a place where if those relationships do happen, that they can be fruitful. I, I mean, there were some students, especially the the working class students that, that I studied in the, in the research that I did in, in elementary schools, those that did have cross-class friendships, they could often use those as, as leverage to kind of get support in, in some ways, that they could rely on their friend to kind of do the asking for help in a way that, that their friend felt more comfortable doing than they did. And that could be a helpful resource for them to be able to sort of get support by proxy when they were doing group work or things like that. Instead, if they had a question, they would send the person who felt most confident asking for support to go get that. But for other students that, that didn't have that kind of a relationship, it, it was more challenging, but it wasn't that they didn't want those relationships, but the, the, the context of their lives made it more, more complicated to achieve that kind of close relationship with peers across social class lines. And so that's part of where the inspiration for the, the, the college-going research, kind of how much do these kinds of peer relationships matter? Do we see these cross-class relationships being a potential source of differences in students' kind of likelihood of college-going and, and things along those lines? So I think it, it suggests that peer relationships can can be a powerful source of, of uh, support uh, and information, but they're not necessarily, but we don't necessarily have the kind of social context that facilitates the development of those relationships, just as the research on sort of cross, cross-racial friendships or cross-ethnic friendships suggests that we just oftentimes don't have the kind of contexts 
that would need to be in place for students in many cases to form those relationships instead. Mm -hmm. Just to nerd out one little step further on the methodology, how did you actually study where kids sat in that lunchroom, you know, in, the, you know, in their lunchrooms, plural, however, however big the end size was? Because that's a, it's, I can just imagine, you know, researchers trying to unobtrusively figure out where, you know, Mary and uh, Jose sat and, you know, what it meant. And then the fact that you tied it to their neighborhoods is just ingenious. I mean, this was part of a much larger, it's part of the same study that went into the, the Negotiating Opportunities book. Uh, so part of a larger ethnographic study where I knew all these kids, I knew their names, I'd done okay. surveys to find out about their backgrounds. And so I would literally go and sit in the lunchroom with them. And there were about 100, 80 to 100 kids in the grade. And there were about 80 that were participating in the project and about 100 kids total that, that I could gather data on but didn't have a lot of data on and was able to sort of just literally had a diagram that I would mm -hmm. fill in every time I went to lunch with them and kind of who was sitting where and where they moved around and drew it all out. And then I had some colleagues that helped me turn it into network data, essentially to be able to, to trace, because that's not my area of expertise. I'm much more a qualitative researcher, but have some great colleagues who, who, can, who can do that, the more quantitative side of the, the network stuff and turn that into into data that can be coded and to understand kind of where are the relationships and who's, we had terrific discussions about how to code like the round tables versus the square tables. Mm -hmm. versus, so like what counts as a seat that's next to a seat and all this. So it was, uh, it was a fun project to work on that we still need to finish that we've kind of gotten slowed down on in terms of publishing, but it was, uh, it's been, it's been a fun project to work on. I love that. The next, every once in a while, I, I have to describe to somebody uh, what mixed methods research is. And the next time I'm going to use your example of ethnographic qualitative research carefully attuned to where kids sit and then working with quantitative network scholars to actually add another level of insight to what you would have gotten there in the initial research. It's a great example of crossing that divide. And then just briefly, what did you find in the, in the uh, study of college completion on the peer-to-peer? Yeah, so essentially, I mean, it, just very basically that, that students who have kind of close friends whose parents have gone to college are substantially more likely to go to college themselves, even if they don't have parents who have college degrees, kind of controlling for a whole host of other factors, suggesting that the networks that you are embedded in, I mean, certainly with a quantitative study, this was with ad health data that, that we can't really tell what the mechanisms are. And that's part of what drove me to want to do more qualitative research was that, that we can't tell a lot about what's actually happening in those relationships just from the correlations that we can see in survey data. And so that, that kind of, to me, points to the importance of that kind of using the right method to answer the right question. And that if your question is about how much does this matter, then that's a clear point to quantitative research. But if instead it's about why does this matter, then that's when actually going into the classrooms or doing interviews, talking to students, talking to their families, talking to their teachers, that's really the only way in many cases that we can tell kind of why, why those kinds of relationships might matter. So I want to come back to a couple other questions on, on your work on young people, but just the the brief detour we just took down sort of methodology lane just leads me because I think a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast either, you know, went to grad school themselves or they are researchers who teach in grad schools and things. And you have a relatively new book, A Field Guide to Grad School, Uncovering the Hidden Curriculum. And so as a teacher yourself and somebody who also studies, you know, educational environments, what is the hidden curriculum in, in grad school? And, uh, what, and of course, I wish I'd read your book before I made that journey myself. But uh, talk a little bit about, about that. Yeah, I mean, so hidden curriculums, I mean, they exist at every level of schooling. And, right. and the idea behind the hidden curriculum is that they are the things that matter for student success, the knowledge, the skills, the strategies that, that students are evaluated on and that affect their likelihood of success, but that are often not explicitly taught. 
And so if we're talking about graduate school, that can be how to choose a program. That can be how to find a team of advisors to support you in making it through the program. It, it can be things like how to get funding for your research, how to kind of write effectively. Things that, I mean, certainly they may be taught to some degree in some programs, but are not always explicitly taught in others. How to navigate difficult relationships, how to deal with toxic cultures, I mean, the, 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 that you might encounter in graduate school. I mean, those are kind of the, the kinds of things that many students will, will will run up against in some way, shape, or form, um, and that, that are often not talked about explicitly, or that there's this assumption that your your advisor will help you figure it out. But because of the the incentive structure of academia, that advisors often don't have their pressure, especially in programs that have universities that have large graduate programs, all of the incentives are directed toward research. So faculty really, especially if we're talking about graduate instruction, faculty's primary incentive is to just focus on getting their own work done. So that gives them little incentive to spend time being good teachers and good mentors, especially at the graduate level. I mean, there's some incentive at the undergraduate level, especially in places where funding for programs is for funding for your department is tied to your undergraduate enrollments. But especially if we're talking about doctoral programs where students might get a stipend instead, there's no financial incentive for, for schools to invest in quality doctoral training. And instead, if anything, there's incentive for advisors and mentors to, to what we might call pick winners, essentially choosing those students who come in seeming like they're going to be successful without with as little help as possible. And because of these sort of unequal structures of academia, those students who kind of have the most exposure to that knowledge are going to be students from privileged backgrounds who have family members who've gone to college or even graduate school themselves who feel entitled to ask for help or support uh, in a way that other students might not. And so I think it, it leads to this sort of reification model where advisors often pick those students because of this sort of hidden curriculum that we have. Advisors can more easily invest in those students who come in knowing the hidden curriculum. And then we often end up with other students, kind of especially students from systematically marginalized groups who are often sort of underinvested in by their faculty members and, uh, and are often not given the support that they need to be successful. And, and then because of that, because of the way that they're sort of underinvested in, often don't feel confident or trust the people in their programs enough to ask for the support that they really need. I saw when I was looking at your Twitter feed, there were a number of people saying there that they are in graduate programs where everybody read your book. And I was like, that's good. They're like, I mean, who knows if they're changing anything, but at least they're sort of like trying to make it explicit to students, you know, at some, it sounded like some early point in their, in their graduate journeys. I mean, that's certainly very humbling. I mean, in my hope, so that's the, the beginning of the book is about like, what is this hidden curriculum and why is it there and why is it a problem? And then the rest of it does go on to sort of offer some advice on what are some of these parts of the hidden curriculum that you might not learn explicitly in your program. Things about how to choose advisors or how to navigate difficult relationships or get funding for research or write or teach effectively. Um, and so my hope is that especially in the absence of a, of a, of efforts to formalize the hidden curriculum, or as, as part of an effort to kind of make formal this hidden curriculum, um, that the book will be a resource in that process. But I would love to see the book become obsolete, essentially, yeah. that it's no longer needed, um, that the, the, the curriculum is no longer hidden, and that we're all talking about this stuff explicitly and making it part of the formal curriculum instead. Yeah, I, I love that. It's really, really, I encourage people to check that one out. So another piece of your work in this whirlwind tour through really a career that is uh, 
going to go on for decades, and I continue to produce interesting stuff. It was hard to even pick and choose from the things you've done to date, but the, the one I couldn't resist, partly because I think it's very relevant for our audience, but I think it's also perhaps the single best title for like an academic paper that I've seen in a long time was one you wrote in 2017, Let Them Eat Cake, Socioeconomic Status and Caregiver Indulgence of Children's Food and Drink Requests. And I was like, that title made me want to, you know, read the article in and of itself. But can you talk a bit about what you found in that particular study? Sure. So this is with a colleague of mine, Bria Perry, who's kind of a sociology of health scholar and medicine scholar. And she had done some research, a study that she had conducted in Kentucky with families. And she kind of had this this surprising finding that she came to me and wanted to talk about, where essentially what she found was that sort of lower SES families were much more likely to say that they had and when their kids asked them for kind of food-based treats, uh, that they were much more likely to say yes uh, than higher SES families were to, to those kinds of to those kinds of requests um, for treats. And, and so, essentially, what we do in the paper, there's a lot of potential explanations for that kind of a finding. Um, and there's a lot of stigma around the kind of of using food as a reward mm-hmm. or kind of this idea of, of kind of inequalities in food consumption. And so, one of the the the, the kind of assumptions that we wanted to challenge was or question was this idea of, is it just about kind of knowledge of nutrition? Um, Because that's often one of the default assumptions is that we just need to educate people about better health choices or better food choices. And we find very explicit evidence that that is not the case, Mm. that that is not the explanation for these patterns, that that families, that that the parents who were making these choices were just as knowledgeable about nutrition choices when they're asked kind of fact-based questions about nutrition. They know just as much about nutrition. And and then we also kind of debunk a series of other ideas and, and kind of ruling out these various possible explanations for these inequalities qualities in giving into food requests, we instead turn to qualitative research, especially to Alison Pugh's book, Longing and Belonging, um, where she does a, a, an ethnographic study of parenting and parents' decisions about what to buy for their kids. And one of the things that she finds is that lower SES parents often engage in, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting the term, but essentially they are they are using they're purchasing decisions for their children as symbolic indulgence. Mm-hmm. That's essentially the, the concept that she uses. And that especially small food-based treats or small things that they can purchase for their kids, those families often know that they, they don't have the money to buy their kids the, the big rewards in life. They, they, may, they can't maybe take their kids to Disney World. They, they know that they maybe can't afford to save for college, that they can't afford to live in the kind of nice neighborhood that they would like to. But they can't afford... A treat like a meal at McDonald's once a week, or they can afford to afford to buy their kids an ice cream cone, and so it's a way of giving their kids a sense of normalcy and a sense of dignity. Is the way that Alison Pugh talks about it in her research, uh, and that essentially, when kind of parents from lower socioeconomic status backgrounds are, are buying things for their kids, they're doing so out of care and as a way to show to show love, given the limited resources that they have. That, that food is an expression of sort of caring in those kinds of contexts, as opposed to higher SES parents who engage in symbolic deprivation, she calls it instead, which is this idea that they think of themselves as virtuous parents by what they, by kind of denying those kind of small treats and focusing on the big stuff that they kind of like, I'm not going to buy you this ice cream cone, but we'll go to Disney World this summer instead. And, and so it's about sort of focusing, and it kind of gets back to the marshmallow test thing. It's like they're, they're focusing on these bigger rewards because they can afford to do so in a way that many other families don't have the luxury of promising and being able to follow through on those kinds of big promises down the line instead. And so that's sort of, after we rule out a series of other explanations, that sort of explanation rooted in sort of the the way that small purchases, including food-based purchases or decisions about sort of food as care, become a way to explain these patterns that, that, that is not about differences in knowledge or differences in concern about kids' health or differences have the, the, the sort of 
the ideologies that, that families have around health either. Yeah, I wish I'd had the insights from that study back when I was teaching high school in the early 90s. The big thing was expensive tennis shoes. And I would have some of my colleagues say, oh my gosh, those kids, their families aren't wealthy. How can they be buying them those shoes? And you know, it didn't have this language at the time, but I knew that this there was an element of that. I mean, sometimes the kids were buying them for themselves, but very often the parents were buying Jordans, you know, and it was sort of a topic of public debate. It's kind of ancient history now, but at the time, I think there was, at least I would guess, some of the same dynamic potentially going on in some of those decisions. Absolutely. And that's what Alison Pugh talks about in her study. It's, it's very much because it's not just about food in her work. It's very much about sort of she has this idea of economies of dignity mm. and that kids define their self-worth by having what is valued in their peer groups. And that if their peer group, if what they talk about, if all they talk about is sneakers, if that's if that's the if that's the currency, because kids don't have money in the way that adults do. And so they don't have money to use as a status marker. And so status becomes determined by whether you can join the conversation and if the conversation is about sneakers, then you have to have the sneakers. If the conversation is about Pokemon cards, you have to have the Pokemon cards. And that for kids who are left out of that, if, if they don't have that, then it's not just that they don't have the thing, but that they don't have the dignity that goes along with being able to join in the conversation and to be accepted by their peers. So it's very much about it, it's very much about relationships and status, that it's not just about kind of having the item and, and the, the, the value of the item itself, but about what that means in the context of an economy of dignity that, that, that defines kids' self-worth. Yeah, that's a wonderful phrase, economy of, of dignity. We're hoping that our schools and our society will be emerging further from this COVID-19 pandemic. As, as kind of a final subject, you have also done some research on family decision-making, and I think in particular maternal decision-making, if I'm not wrong, you know, amidst this hopefully once-in-a-century catharsis that we've all been living through. Can can you talk a bit, about, a bit about what you've done? Yours is actually one of the first examples of, of you know, sort of s- serious time-sensitive research around the pandemic that I've started to see, where you're really saying, okay, this is a pivotal moment for these kids, for these families, and by extension for all of us. How are people reacting? How are people responding? Yeah, I mean, the reason we were able to jump into this research so quickly was that we actually started a study back in 2018, uh, myself and a couple of colleagues, actually mostly graduate students. So I was interested in building off of the research that I'd done before, understanding how parents come to decide what kind of parent they want to be. And thinking about that if so many of these family decisions matter for what kinds of schools kids go to or how much privilege they have or what kinds of food they eat, how do parents make those decisions? How do they come to the idea of what kind of parent they want to be? And then what happens when life gets in the way? What happens when circumstances intervene to prevent parents from being from from doing the all organic food or from breastfeeding or from limiting their kids screen time? So we started, I started with a, a survey of moms. We recruited 250 moms here in Indiana while they were pregnant back in, so we started in 2018 and then kind of checked in with those same moms every six months for the first two years of their kids' lives to try to find out. During pregnancy, we asked them, what kinds of decisions do you expect to make as a parent? And especially, who do you get input on those decisions from? So who are you talking to about whether to breastfeed, whether to go back to work after after you give birth? Who's giving you input? Who's giving you pushback? Or who's giving you support? And then kind of how is that shaping your decisions? And then checking in with them to see, okay, now that you've given birth to this child, what decisions are you actually making? And how do you feel about it if you weren't able to make the decisions that you initially intended to make? Um, And what kinds of factors intervened? And how are other people around you potentially judging you for those decisions that you're making? And so ultimately, all that is to say that we were in the field with that project Mm. when the pandemic hit last spring. We were still doing interviews, still doing surveys. And so it became very apparent very quickly 
how much of an impact the pandemic was having on these moms that we were continuing to follow as well as their families. So we kind of pivoted and did some additional surveys and additional interviews to be able to understand that the toll that the pandemic was taking on mothers in terms of their relationships, in terms of their well-being, in terms of their careers, and then have built that into uh, built that out into some additional quantitative research. Um, we did a big um, national survey of parents back in December as well to try to see kind of are these patterns that we're looking at here in Indiana kind of representative um, nationally and then also looking being able to sort of talking about mixed methods research, being able to combine some of the qualitative data with the quantitative data. I have a new paper with one of my grad students looking at, we find in the national data that, that it's like a 2000 parent survey that mothers are significantly and substantially more likely than fathers to say that they won't vaccinate their kids against COVID-19. Mm. It's like roughly a third of mothers say say they won't vaccinate their kids um, compared to only about 17% of dads. And then among white Republican mothers, it's uh, almost 50% say they won't vaccinate their kids. And so we wanted to sort of dig in and find out where is this coming from? And we're actually able to use the, the interview sample because we asked those, those moms the same questions, kind of where is this coming from? And, and one of the things that we find is that, that a lot of the reluctance to vaccinate or the concerns about vaccination among mothers stem from the, the pressures that we put on mothers and the blame that we put on mothers uh, when something goes wrong with their kids. So mothers see themselves as, especially these white Republican moms, see themselves as more able to control the risks of COVID than the risks of the vaccine. They feel like wow. they can take steps to, they have the privilege to keep their kids safe. They can pr protect them from the rest of the world, but if they get that vaccine, there's the random chance that they will get sick. And so, and they worry about how they'll be blamed. Um, and they worry about the guilt that would come along with that if their kid were to get sick or end up on a ventilator because of a vaccine side effect. So that's the, the what's what's often driving their concern is sort of this this heightened pressure that we put on moms to to be the ones who protect their kids from every possible risk um, and that they, in the context, especially of misinformation, perceive themselves as more able to control the risks of the virus than the risks of the vaccine itself. Wow. By the time this comes out, it'll be fascinating for people to listen to this and know where we are with vaccination as we sit here in early May of 2021 and starting to watch those numbers around the country going in some moving at a different pace in different places. So so, so final question, and this has just been such an honor and so great, but sticking with this this issue of the pandemic that we're emerging from or or any other of the, the many pressures of the past uh, year, well, what do you think it's critical we don't forget? What do we need to remember from this time? And, and you can answer that question in, in any of the many of domains that we've discussed or that have been a focus of your work. I mean, I think the most important thing that I keep coming back to is the idea that the inequalities that we've seen and talked about during the pandemic are not new. They are a product of the longstanding inequalities that exist in our schools, in our society, in families, in workplaces. And in many cases, they've been they've been amplified because of those inequalities that existed before the pandemic. Uh, and and I'm, I'm grateful to see more attention to some of these inequalities during the pandemic. But I'm concerned that if we assume that a return to normalcy will mean an end to those inequalities that we've seen amplified during the pandemic, that we're going to be ignoring the fact that the system we had before was deeply problematic and unequal, and that a return to normal is, is not necessarily a return to good, but a return to a system that, that is and remains problematic. And that if anything, we should be using this pandemic as a way to think about how to build towards something better, as opposed to building back toward what we had before. 
Well, your research points us in a lot of different directions where we could productively do that. So again, this has been such an honor. Dr. Jessica Calarco, uh, continuing to do important scholarship, but also on Twitter and elsewhere, very committed to speak in plain language for the world. So I include you to check her out there and the books we've discussed. And uh, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Rooted in Relationships. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great to chat with you. Thanks. That was Dr. Kent Pickell interviewing Dr. Jessica Calarco, a leading researcher at the University of Indiana. I'm Ben Holberg, CEO of Search Institute. I want to thank you for listening and ask that you review Rooted in Relationships wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. The Rooted in Relationships podcast is made possible by the grants from Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the John Templeton Foundation nor the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. For more resources on how to build and strengthen developmental relationships with young people, visit the Resources Hub on our website, searchinstitute.org. Thank you.